Teigen. And I'm Eric. This is season two of the Professional Weaver Podcast, where each week we have discussions with weavers in the supply chain that supports us with hopes to build depth, transparency, and connection within the hand weaving community. This week's episode was sponsored by Comfort Cloth Weaving, a company specializing in heirloom quality handwoven products for the home, as well as yardage for the fashion and accessories industries and value-added products for farmers and wool growers. Find out more at comfortclothweaving.com. We would like to thank all of our patrons of the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, go to proweaverpod.com support to make a one-time or monthly support contribution. This week, we are talking with Janet Phillips from England. Janet has been designing and weaving for over 40 years after studying industrial textile design at the Scottish College of Textiles, graduating with a first-class honors degree. Color and texture are still the foundations that keep her weaving. She dyes most of the yarn she uses, and she is continually experimenting and sampling to find new weaves and textures. Janet also has a deep commitment to teaching others to be creative with their weavings. She has authored two books, Designing Woven Fabrics and Exploring Woven Fabrics, which encourage weavers to really understand how a woven fabric is constructed, guiding the weaver to develop their own designs and structures. Enjoy our conversation with Janet as we talk about how she became a weaver, teaching woven design, and the importance of sampling to understand woven structures. We began speaking with Janet about how the weaving seed was planted early on a chance trip. Well, I, I, I became a, a weaver from leaving school. It was my career choice from leaving school. Okay. Um, and that came about, I think, because I have always been interested in textiles, even from a very young age. I was very fussy about what I wore. There had to be pretty dresses. I collected ribbons. I, you know, I, I appeared to be interested in textiles, although I didn't know it at the time, obviously. Um, but um, when I was um, 16, my grandparents came to stay to visit us one summer and we were living in Edinburgh at the time, which Edinburgh in Scotland. And my parents decided to take us all out on a day trip. Two miles south of Edinburgh to a place called Galashiels, which is in the middle of the, um, which is in the borders of Scotland, in the heart of the Scottish Tweed industry. Oh. It's right next door to the River Tweed. The River Tweed runs through Galashiels. Right, it's that that close to where the Scottish tweed industry is based, and we visited mills that day. It was the only thing that there was to do in Galashiels. Actually, Uh, I think we could have gone anywhere that day. We didn't have. I think it was just a convenient place to go. I don't think my parents went there because I was interested in textiles because I wasn't particularly. It literally was just a day out. But one of the mills we visited was a man called Bernard Klein, who in the sixties. This was in nineteen sixty-seven. This all happened. Um, was revolutionising the Scottish textile industry by weaving amazing fabrics in wonderful colours and wonderful yarns. And I just can still remember standing in that mill, just feeling excited about what I saw and just thinking it was all wonderful and and that notion in your head that maybe you could earn your living doing this. Mm. So that was it, really. And uh, so I went home, forgot all about it, needless to say. 
I was actually, we just moved house and I actually um, had to starting a new school. And it was actually the year that I was taking my university entrance exams, you know, so I was sort of having to find my way there. And um, so I sat my entrance exam, my university entrance exams, and I did okay that year, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I um, actually went back to school in the September for the second, for a second year to, to in effect, take on more exam, do more exams for one or something to do. Now, on that first day back at school, all the other girls in my class actually were, were, were made prefects. And they went to the prefects room at, at the break time and I was on my own at break time. And I, I did say at the beginning, actually, because I changed schools, you know, I was the new girl in the school, right? Yeah. And all these other girls had been in the school since they were 10, 11. So they worked their way through the school and there were only, there were only 13 girls in the year, actually. So the 12 went off to be uh, prefects. So, of course, I must have made a fuss and my dad was in the, went up to see the headmaster the next day. And they said, yes, I could be a prefect. Oh, no, I could, I could go to the prefect's room at, at break time, but I wasn't going to be made a prefect. But it also, the school recognised that they had nothing to offer me. And I just had to decide what I wanted to do. So they sent me to the library. And I um, spent two days actually wading through prospectuses of colleges and courses and on the second day I came across the Scottish College of Textiles in Galashiels and I just saw myself back in Bernard Klein's mill yeah so I said, that's what I wanted to do so the headmaster got me in a, an interview and um, two weeks later I left home left school I was 17 I often think that if I'd been made a prefect I might never have done it that's why I told you the bit about prefects because you know, I would have just piddled along doing what all the other kids in the school were doing and who knows. And also if I hadn't, my parents hadn't taken me to Gala Shields that day, well, they could have taken me anywhere that day. Mm. It's just a kind of, you know, day out with the grandparents. Yeah, it's always so interesting. Two key factors that made me into a weaver, as, as well as my fundamental interest in colour and textiles. Yeah. It's always interesting what those little seeds do to grow that inspiration to get you into textiles. My uh, my mother and my grandmother both taught me how to crochet, and I used to make these ropes that would just go all around my room, and I was so interested in yarn and how it went together, and it just kind of fell into place when I went to college. It was like, oh, this just makes sense. <laughs> well, I'm the same. I, you know, I knitted and I... I sewed all my own clothes all year. My, my, my mother knitted and crocheted. And yeah, it was, it was part of one's family that you were dealing with textiles. But I didn't realise in a way you could earn your living doing it. You know, it was more, it was just something, who knows, just turned up in the shops, didn't it? And you bought it. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you transition from being a student of textiles to making a living making textiles? What was kind of your career path in that sense? Well, I spent four years at the Scottish College of Textiles and we, I was trained to work in a mill, exactly what you're doing. I was trained to design fabrics and get uh, the, the industrial looms to weave yardage. I was trained to design functional fabrics. So when I left, I actually did very well at college. I, I, I got a first class honours degree and I actually got what they call the Dr. Oliver Medal. I got the 
prize for the best design student for all it's worth anyway wow um when i left school this was in nine, uh, college in 1972 it was actually at the start of the decline of the scottish textile industry and a lot of the mills were closing down and it was quite difficult to find work i did a, a kind of few week apprentices at a, a mill in selkirk uh, and in the end, well, my parents had moved back to London. I was born in London, but we, I was brought up in Scotland. And so I kind of went home. And in the end, I got a job in London working for a shop called Wallace Shops. It's a fashion house in the UK. I don't think it's in the, in the US. I was working with the buyer of fabrics to source fabrics for the coat and suit department. So we were working with the clothes designers they would tell, show us the clothes they were designing, what sort of fabrics they wanted. And at the top end of the um, range, I was able to uh, tweak, if you like, work with the mills and actually design a few fabrics myself. But most of the work was actually buying work that was already being manufactured. We used to go to the European textile fairs in Frankfurt and um, Paris looking for Thanks, but I worked with some of the mills in Yorkshire in the UK um, designing the odd fabric but I was actually you've got to realize I was what I was 22 23 years old when I was doing this and in fact I was a bit out of my league well I, I wasn't comfortable also I looked very young I had one of my problems in life it's not a problem it hasn't been a problem at all really it was only a problem when I was 22 I've always looked about 10 years younger than what I actually am and of course when I was 22 I looked like I was 12 seriously and I would put all the makeup on and you know and of course I was the trendy designer coming up from London into Yorkshire and this and these mill owners they didn't know what to do with me this little girl turned up there we go anyway so um I only did it for about two or three years. And actually, I got married then, as one did in the, in the 60s and 70s. You got married very young. And so, and I moved to a part of the UK, which doesn't have any mills. Oh. So I thought, okay, well, I'll have to just buy myself a loom and start weaving. And that's what I did. Um, I started by weaving rugs, mainly floor rugs. And I probably did floor rugs for about five, six years, just selling at local craft fairs. Um, uh, I happened to live in a part of the UK. I lived in, in a place called South Oxfordshire. It's only about 40 miles west of London. It's kind of a commuter area of, for London and it's quite a w wealthy area. So by chance, I happened to be living in a place where there were people who had disposable income and who appreciated unique things. I think that was a lucky aspect. Yeah. And, um, you know, in those days, there was no internet. You couldn't sell online or anything like that. I, I sold at craft fairs and I sold at, um, uh, I wasn't very keen on selling in shops. I did very little sale and return. But I know I would go to craft fairs and I would have, I'd get orders for rugs and I'd go to their homes and we'd decide what colours they wanted to do. And it, I kind of, it just sort of happens. I, I should say right at the start, that I've never earned a lot of money doing this, <laughs> but I've, I have always earned money. I've always had weaving to do and it's kind of grown from that. Yes. Yeah. It, mm. It's a, a kind of, I can't tell you anything exciting or special. It's kind of just as my, in the early days, when I look back at 
well, I say I wove rugs for about the first six, seven years, but I actually found I wanted to weave fabrics. I, I was getting bored with the, that structurally it was the same thing the whole time. It was colors and nice and patterns. And, I, and you can certainly earn quite a bit of money doing a rug because it's like an art piece. Yeah. You know, it's not like a scarf. It's not, it's not something you can just buy in a shop. But I was missing the structure, which is what I actually enjoy about the weaving. And so I started to do much sort of more functional fabrics cool. and found that more interesting. I also found that weaving rugs very hard work. It's incredibly heavy work. Yeah. I'm only little. I'm only five foot high. So. <laughs> I totally, I totally get that. I'm, I mean, we, we're not making a lot doing what we're doing, but we love it and i've gotten to the point where i was making product for craft shows and really enjoying it and then i realized i like weaving big things i like weaving yards of fabric that can be used for something so that's kind of how our business is transforming because i'm a lot like you i love playing with structures and playing with color and how they all interact together and it is so satisfying Eric does the rug weaving. <laughs> that was something that I just couldn't do myself. <laughs> Are you weaving on um, on hand looms? Yeah. On, you're weaving on hand looms rather than um, industrial looms. Yep. Well done. We do have some plans for uh, some industrial looms coming up in the next couple of years, but we have to work to that. Yes, but I found what I what I was selling was the fact that they were hand woven, that, that it was me, they were mm -hmm. meeting the designer, that they actually could, certainly for commissions, have an input in, you know, I would weave them, design them something that was specific for what they wanted. That's what they were, play, were paying for. They could get machine woven stuff anywhere. Right. Yeah. Not too, I think, say, well, look, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm selling. Therefore, it's more special. Mm -hmm. And I think that then therefore you can charge more for it. Yeah. I don't want to tell you. I'm not telling you you mustn't get, go and get your industrial looms, but it's, it's, it's a different sort of market. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we're going to do is we're going to sort of, because we've got more wholesale coming in now, and it's looking like um, <clears throat> they want different things out of the material. So they're looking for maybe local material or U.S. sourced actual materials, like raw materials. So... And then they want like tons of yardage. So we're trying to figure out how can we go faster. And if they're willing to give up hand woven, we can get it out to them much faster. And they can still have the um, US made, sourced, grown, all that. But then we can still have a full line of hand woven produced fabric as well to offer them if they want to wait or if they want less or if they want it you know, if they want that as opposed to the more manufactured stuff. No, you're right. If you're starting, if you're actually wanting yardage, then you, you know, you have to go to an industrial loom. It's, I find, again, in a way, weaving yardage, I, I never wove more than about six, eight yards of anything. Okay. You know, just for one jacket. Yes. Yeah. I would never weave more than that. It's too boring. I mean, for me, anyway. You know, it's hard work and it's not, you know, and you get the, uh, it, in a way, the weaving for me is the least interesting part. You know, I will sit there and weave and it is meditative, but it's hard work and it's, uh, no, you're right. If you're going to do anything more than about 10 meters at a time, get it on a power loom. Yeah. 
So you were doing craft shows. How did this kind of evolve into you teaching and subsequently writing two wonderful books? Well, um, so let's see the timing of this now. So I'm now getting, I'm now into the eighties, right? I've got two young children. Um, and again, it just, I was asked to teach what we call community education classes in Oxford, right? In, in you've probably heard of Oxford in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I live quite near to Oxford. Um, and then yeah, this was in the, yeah, the eighties, we had these things called community education classes. They were absolutely fun, fabulous. They were f- funded by the government. And um, they covered every spectrum of interest. They were fabulous and they were really cheap because they were subsidised by the government. Um, and in Oxford, they had this room where there were the two portugal ca- ca- cabins at the back of the um, Further Education College. And it was full of looms. We had, I think, 30 table looms and about 20 floor looms. And... Um, we had 30, I had 18 students in the morning on a Thursday and 18 students in the afternoon on a Thursday. And we just wove away every Thursday. It was, it was absolutely magic. The college hated us because we, we were using up a big area of space that couldn't be used for anything else. You know, no other classes could use it because we were only using it on a Thursday. Uh, but it was a magical time. And they, they stuck with us for about 20 years. And in the end, they just couldn't cope. I couldn't cope with the weavers going on. So that was great for me when I was um, had young children as well. It just gave me a day out. Because yeah. weaving can be quite a lonely job. You know, you're mm. on your own the whole time. And I found teaching these students quite inspiring. You know, they, I would, the way I taught the classes, they would say, oh, they wanted a scarf. They wanted, a, I don't know, a bit of fabric. They wanted a cushion. I didn't know what they wanted. And I would say, well, okay, draw me a picture of what you... What, what do you want you know and so um I would design them something and then we would sample it you know check that it was what they wanted and they understood how how the design was and then they wove it I mean it would take them all year to do this yeah and they did it draw this sampling on a table loom then we'd all go onto the floor loom to weave the things and um anyway I found I just found I learned so much from these students you know and just the way they got me to design these weirdo things for them and you know and they worked yeah and um it was actually about in 1990 it was one of the girls so she'd been coming for years she said she didn't want to weave a finished product anymore she wanted to know how how, how did I do it how did I des- how did I know what to design how did I know what to do how to do it? I said well you've got to weave sample blankets I said and um so she actually brought her bought me a handwoven magazine which had a, a sampler blanket in it. It had one threading, it was only about six inches wide. It was straight threading and it had about 20 different liftings playing with four shaft, playing mm-hmm. with um, twill really. She said, what did I think? Did I think this would be a good idea? I said, yeah, it'd be a great idea, but it'd be a total waste of time to do it just with one straight threading. While you're weaving all these different liftings, you know, you need to have different threading plans as well. So I really did. I scruffed her out on the back of an envelope, literally three or four other threading plans. I said, to do this. And she went off. She actually wove it at home. And she came back about two weeks later with this sample blanket. It was, she'd woven it in rug wool. Do you know what I mean? Two-ply rug wool, really? Yeah. We call it two-ply rug wool. It a dirty beige and a dirty pink colour. It was truly 
disgusting. <laughs> it looked awful. But Rhoda was really excited about it. She said, I've learned so much. But really, you could barely see the patterns. It was just... So I said, well, great. I didn't tell her it was ugly, you understand. I didn't say that to her. And um, I said, well, I think you need to weave it again. You need to weave it in a white warp and a, a dark colored weft, because that is one of the key tricks of weaving, you know, light warp, dark weft. That was one of the first things we were ever told. If you've got two colors, I always put the lighter one in the warp and the darker one in the weft, unless there's a design reason for doing it the other way around. Um, so she went off and wove it again in a, in a kind of very, you know, cotton. And this blanket came back and it was just awesome. I was just completely gobsmacked by it. There was these really complex twills, things that I'd looked at them in a book, I said we would need eight shafts or more. And I was getting them on four shafts and I just was blown away about it. And the, the other students in the class got very excited about it and they kept asking me, you know, how, how do you get this pattern and that pattern? I said, I've got no idea, you've got to ask Rona. And it soon got to the point that I realized I had to weave this sample blanket myself. Yeah. And so I wove it myself. Of course, by the time I did it, I put on 10 threadings and thought of 150 liftings. My first one was massive. And I realized there was a book here. I realized there was, it was, it was so overwhelmingly exciting. And for me, somebody who spent my life weaving on high shafts. I mean, I was taught to weave on 24 shafts, you know, and here I was getting terribly excited about four shaft weaving. And um, so that's what, that's what where the Designing Woven Fabrics book came from. I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book about this. Cool. And, um, that's what I did. That's and I'm still using that sample blanket. That sample blanket, I still use it to this day putting it onto more shafts, you know, taking, joining all the weaves together, putting them on eight, 10, 16 shafts. I, it's been the greatest resource for my personal weaving ever. So I hope it's going to be a great resource for everybody else. Yeah. I've just sold my 4,000 copies. In fact, I've just, I've literally, I'm getting a reprint done at this moment. The book's been printed off. I've sold over 4,000 copies of that book. Wow. That's awesome. I think that proves that weavers are finding it of interest and they are finding it, it, it. Hopefully, it's a very much beginner's book of how to design. You see, how I design, I design with ends and picks. I, I'm interested in the cloth. And a lot of books describe weaving in terms of what the loom does. They describe it in terms of threadings and liftings. And if you're learning to weave in terms in terms of design, the loom's in control, but of course it's the ends and picks that are in control. And you've got to understand how weaves are constructed. We'll soon get the loom to do it for us. The loom's the tool, it's not the designer. Mm. And so right. this book is about looking at the ends and picks and playing with the ends and picks and creating structures. Yes? Yeah. And that's how I talk to weave and that's how I do it. And so I think it's, Another reason maybe why it sells so well is it's just taking weaving at a sl from a slightly different angle. I mean, I use the books that are just using threadings and tie-ups. And yeah, I know. I mean, I, they're all great books. There's no book I would ever say isn't a good book. But I, I think my books are coming from a different aspect and maybe making weavers think a little bit differently. Yeah. That's what I hope so anyway. Yeah. it's. I actually found it really refreshing when... I was going through and finding all these books to teach myself how to be a better weaver. And when I discovered your book, 
I really honed in on being able to transform a pattern just through how the picks are laid out or how you set your ends in your read. And it really, like now when I do a design, I do all of my designs on computer drafting just to figure it out. And I will play and play and play until I really hone in on the exact setup. And then I'll just do the samples. I'll run through all the samples and see how they end up. And it's so rewarding to see how much you can do with just one threading and just playing with the tie up and playing with your treadling. It's so inspiring. Yeah. 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 It's all about exploration and just trying and not. Yeah. Great. It's great to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, uh, helped us a lot early with our production because we'd put on a like a single warp that was you know x wide and then really long like 50 yards long and it would have we'd be able to put on like 10 different patterns and then that could be made into face towels napkins uh hand towels hand, you know yeah it could be made into like a ton of different products and it could be done with all the different colors that we dyed and in all the different patterns. So we could essentially put one warp on that could make 45 products for us. Good. Sounds great. That's yeah. how I do it too. Yeah. I hear, I just heard you say that, did you say that you dyed your own yarns? Yes. We, yep. we dye all of our own yarn. Well, I, I reckon when I started dyeing my own yarns, that really, really improved my weaving. Yeah. Suddenly suddenly because color is just so important and the ranges that you can buy just don't have that range of colors and i would say that was one of the, one of the main things that really really improved my weaving when i started dyeing the color i actually wanted yeah how did you how did you get into dyeing well you know i was a member of my local guild uh, in oxford yeah. And, you know, some tutor turned up one day and they, or well, the guild was putting on a dying course, you know, and I would go on the course and I thought, hello, I can do this. I mean, I mainly dye with acid dyes. I don't do natural dyeing because I want to get specific colour and I want to be able to re-dye it. So, you know, so it's, yeah, I just did it like most weavers do. They go to their local guild who puts on a course for you. Nice. And I still got my stainless steel buckets and... You see, I I very much I'm not doing what you're doing. I I really did one offs. Yeah, as I said, I never wove more than about ten meters at the most. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I'm only dying quite small amounts. I'm dying just for that one or two products. Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't want to die in huge bulk. I'm, I'm only dying at 100, 200 grams of yarn at a yeah. time. That's still such an important tool to have in your toolbox really though mm. to dis- discover and find the specific colors that you need for your project and how it's going to impact your final fabric it's even it depend it the scale doesn't matter it is really just about honing in and discovering what makes the fabric really special eric and i had a very long discussion he learned how to dye and made these beautiful, solid colors. They were perfect. It almost looked like you could buy them from the store. And I said to him, these are great, but they're too perfect. I need a little bit of 
surprise. I need a little bit of variegation. I need something different that makes it unique. So he had to go back and learn how to bake consistently inconsistent yarn for me. (laughs) One of the things I find with yarn, say you do want to do a self-colored cloth. If the color of the warp is marginally lighter than the color of the weft, so that the warp and weft are not the same color, but one is marginally lighter than the other, it, the whole thing will become richer yeah. than if you actually have the same colour in the warp and the weft. You know, because there's just going to be that little mixing. It's just going to be more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And that you can do with dyeing, you see, just to put slightly less dye in. And suddenly you've got the same colour, but there's just this kind of difference or just make one a little bit redder margin, but marginally. It'll still look like a self-coloured cloth, but it will be more exciting visually yeah that's a little trick for you yeah and we do like um i do it so it's uh a little bit variegated throughout as well so when it when we dye it it's um i like change either the depth of the water that i put in like how much water i put in the the container or i change how much i agitate it or how long it stays in or how long it soaks in the um, in the soda, soda ash. ash. There's like different things I can do to change how much uh, it variegates when I dye it. And so you're dyeing with with Procyon dyes then, if you're using soda. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're doing a lot of um, uh, like bast fibers, cotton, linen, those kinds of things. Well, that's great if you're wanting to do this sort of random dyeing and sort of kind of much more sort of bitty, you know, bits. Yeah. 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 It took a long time for me to figure out because I did. I like, she, had, we decided we were going to start dying. And my initial like perfection brain goes, you got to do it as good as you can buy it. So I figured that out. And then, then it took me a long time to work backwards from that to figuring out how to get it uh, consistently inconsistent so that it didn't matter what skein we grabbed and it would always look good. And somebody could then purchase, like six months later, another hand towel to add to their set or whatever. Good. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. It's been an interesting process. So what have been, what has, let me form the sentence correctly. What have you learned from your students that have been the most exciting? Well, I, I get students to weave multiple section sample blankets because that's the way I was taught. You never, ever weave a, a sampler just one wide. You always yeah. do some variation in the warp because, as you say, it's dead easy to change the weft. But, you know, you've got to prepare the changes for the warps. And it's just like, you know, you set them all uh, a project because I was, I wasn't, to, uh, I did for 10 years teach what I call my master class in weaving where I was really checked. T- training people teaching students to become designers in two years and so I'd have six students and I'd set them all this project to to weave a sample blanket well of course they all came up with different threadings and different liftings all of them you know completely different from what I would have done oh yeah you could do that fancy doing that of course you could do that why hadn't I thought of it and it, it was just showed the breadth of ideas that could be could be developed when you get you know six people all turning up with different things you know I took and it was just like 
it was just amazing. I mean, that, and that's what I, that's where I get my ideas from myself. I weave all these sample blankets. I weave them over and over again, and I tweak them. And I just have this massive library of weaves, ideas. So, and I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm answering your question now, actually, I'm rather moving on, waving away, but I think I, I spend a lot of time looking at these sample blankets that I weave and I'm kind of almost like reading them. I don't, I think I'm almost got a photographic mind. I'm really just looking at them and absorbing them. Yes. Yeah. And when I'm out in the world, walking around, I see things and I say, oh, that reminds me of that little square on that sample blanket. Oh, that's it then. I'm, I'm down that road. Yes. Yeah. The inspiration source because I've seen it in the real world. I know it's going to be green. I know it's going to be that pattern because that was the pattern of the trees when I saw it. And that's how I sort of build up my ideas. And I think, again, it was just when you, I knew what your question is now, you know, how did the students influence me? I think it's just seeing somebody else's take on something that you do. Yeah. You teach something, yeah. And I know in my mind just that I know what the answer is going to be, right? Because I've done it before. And then the student comes up with something completely different. And you think, oh, yeah, fancy that now. Hmm, I think I might do that next time. That's cool. That's, that was your question, wasn't it? And then, yeah. You got it? Yeah. <laughs> you teach something and you think, you know, 99% of what the answer is. And then they come up with something different. Well, well, well. Now I know. There's always different answers to the same question. It's great. Yeah, of course. Mm. Of course. What what would you, if somebody were interested in teaching weaving themselves, what would be some things that you would recommend to them? Well, I teach, I do all my own designing on table looms and I would I recommend every student had a table loom. It's, it's just very immediate in terms of playing and, and a floor loom is for weaving, is for weaving on, right? Yeah. And, and the modern jack looms in particular are very quick to tie up and untie, but you want to have that immediacy. So you have to have table looms. Okay. In my opinion. And, you know, and yes. Yeah. I mean, I do all my sampling on table looms because I want to change quickly. And then when I'm, I know what I want to do, then I'll set it all up on the loom and tie it up. And, yeah. I, I will admit I've only woven on a table loom once. It was an experience, not totally pleasant, but it got it got the bug in my ear that weaving was the thing I wanted to do. And I I do most of my sampling on floor looms, but I think I'm after speaking with you, I might have to revisit the table loom and. Well, you, you asked me about what as a teacher, what should you do? Yeah. Yeah, um, but um, yeah, I, I do all my. T it's yeah, um, and get all my students to do their their, their samples on table looms. You, you, the thing is also about a table loom is you've got to really know what the lift is. Am I weaving a plain weave lift? Am I weaving a two and two twill lift? Whatever. Yes. Yeah. You have to be, you. It just forces you to actually look at and think of what am I actually doing when you get to a floor loom. You've got, I mean, I don't know how you work your floor looms. I just got pedal numbers written out. And yeah. it's pedal one, pedal six, pedal two, pedal four, yes? Yep. Mm -hmm. well, what the shafts are actually doing is immaterial because I've moved away from that, yes? Yeah. I'm just treadling a, a treadling sequence. 
when you're on the table loom, it's the ends and picks. This is again going back to what does the fabric actually do? It's the ends and picks that you are manipulating, not the loom. Can you see the difference? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why you have, you have to you learn weaves on the table loom, not on a floor loom, which is for weaving yardage. Right. That's what it's designed for. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> My bit. So really with the table looms, because it is like a direct tie-up, you are manipulating each shaft sequence. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. And so you know what you're doing. Yes. And also I teach theory of structure. So we've worked it all, we've worked it all out on paper beforehand. I don't tend to teach on computer programs because again, it, it removes you from the, from the cloth. Because again, they tend to, play around with threadings and liftings anyway so you again they're moving away from what the ends and picks are actually doing so I teach the theory which is what I'm doing in the book as well I teach yeah. the theory of the weave structure and then when you're on the loom thing oh yeah I'm just I'm just lifting exactly what I've just written on a bit of paper I can see the relationship between the, th the loom and the weave structure and mm. then when you really want to weave a bigger bit faster you stick it on the floor loom yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I'm I'm very interested because I am a a goal that I have in life is to become a master weaver. So I I have the HGA book on the certificate of excellence to go through and really understand the structures and everything. And I I've been so chicken to start because I feel like that I have an understanding of structure but it's not really in depth. So I think if I went back to the table loom and really broke down how each of the structures worked, I think that may help me get the courage to move forward. Mm. Well, uh, uh, that's certainly, if you came to me, I'd make you do that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and certainly, obviously, that's what I'm doing in designing woven fabric. So you're right. That's what I'm actually getting you to do. I mean, I yeah. wove the sample blanket in there on a floor on a table loom but this book here yeah i'm taking much more complex structures and explaining them structurally and then getting you to weave a sample blanket on a table loom because the structures get so complex i mean you couldn't be changing the treadles every two inches because you're doing another pattern right so by doing it on a table loom you can you can weave so much quicker you, know, you learn you learn so much more but actually, that's what exploring woven fabrics about. I've got eight more tape sample blankets. Nice. But I'm showing you the theory first, so that when you're on the loom, you think, "Oh yeah, well, I've just, I've just constructed that. I know exactly why the shafts are lifting in that way." Yeah. Um, so, when you are talking about structure theory, what is that in a nutshell? Basically, how because I, I, I'm so far removed from academia now that I, the theory of structure, all I understand is the lifting of the shafts and how the picks interact with it. So I'm interested to hear maybe your take on what that theory means as a weaver and how that can be, make us be better weavers. Well, it, it's... <laughs> It's really exactly what you've just said. It, it is looking at how the ends and picks interlace, rather than what the pedals and the and the the pedals and the shafts are doing. Okay. It's actually looking at the ends and picks on a piece of paper, 
interlacing. It's when you do you, it sounds like you work quite a bit on um, computer programs. I do. Okay. So it, with a computer program, they tend to say, put a threading in, put a tie up in, and then you can press buttons, weavers drawn in or reverse or something. And then it gives you a, a, a drawdown, doesn't it? It gives you the yeah. drawdown. Yes. Well, I'm talking about constructing that bit first. Yes. Okay. You structure that first. And on a computer program, I find it quite difficult to see the, how the thing has been built up because all the warp and weft marks are the same. They're just black, black squares on the weave diagram. Yes. Got yeah. But when you're actually doing it for, for real, you say, well, I'm going to put the plain weave in crosses and I'm going to put the twill bits in circles and I'm going to put the, you know, the extra ends. If I'm putting supplementary warp on, I'll use a different notation mark for each different element of the design. Mm -hmm. So you can see clearly, oh, those ends are doing that and these ends are doing that. If you, if you just, on the computer program, you can't really see, differentiate between say the plain weave picks and the twill picks because it's right. all, they all look the same on the screen. It's, uh, it's kind of quite, just, and I, in, in my books, I talk about that. Yeah. To use different notation marks and you can, you can build up a shape and you can build up a design and then you can soon get a threading and a lifting to lift it but it's kind of we're really looking at how the ends and picks are interlacing mm. cool that's what, I, that's what i call the structure which yeah. is exactly what you said the structure was it is how the ends and picks into it but it's not related in what the loom does it's not to do with shafts and pedals Right. With ends and picks, because that to me is what you start with, and then we get the loom to do it. Get the loom to do whatever I want. Cool. Because looms are pretty controlling beasts. Yes. <laughs> that you might want to do that the loom won't let you do. So then you have to um, kind of evolve it a bit. But I still think it's better. It's kind of like any artist. You want the big idea. You don't want to say, well, that's all I can do because that's all I know. Right. Start with a big idea and then you might say, well, actually, uh, maybe that is all I can do. But you have to have the big idea first. Otherwise, you won't get new ideas coming. Right. Yes. So I might construct something that I think looks great. And then I find my loom can't do it. So, you're, OK, well, I'll, I'll tweak it a bit. But, yeah, it's kind of had the mind. Yeah. Mm. That my mindsets anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I, interested in what loom can do when I'm designing. I want to create this wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. You're the designer, not the loom. Right. We kind of dive in the deep end in designing, kind of reaching the limits of our loom and our design capabilities when we work. And the most recent project I did where challenged my loom was I did a double weave cloth that had a pattern on the face, a different pattern on the back, and different colors for each face to create one cohesive fabric. So I wasn't weaving a tube, I was weaving a stitched double weave cloth. And that was such, I could not get it to work. I was, I was using my computer program and everything I came up with looked good in the program, but then as soon as I brought it to the loom, it just wasn't working. And I finally had to sit down and figure out on with paper and pencil and drawing different symbols okay, this layer does this, this layer does that, this is how they interact. And it really opened my eyes of, oh, this is how double weave works. Mm. 
that's that's wonderful to hear. That's exactly how I do it. Yeah. And then you then you're more in, able to sort the problem out once you're on the loom. Right. You have the fundamental knowledge of how the the cloth works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it looked really cool at the end once. Like it was cool to see the progression from is sort of working to it actually working. <laughs> like all of those steps, like all the different warps that went on. Yeah. It, yeah. it took it took about four or five warps for me to really figure it out. Well, I'm sure you learned loads and you know you're in much better position to take that idea forward in a slightly different way. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. You've got to get something on the loom. You know, the more you get on the loom, you can't do too much theory. Because once it's on the loom, that's when it all happens, really. Yeah. Mm. That's when all that theory comes to reality. Yeah. 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 So what has been some of the best advice you've ever received? I remember being told light warp, dark weft, very, very, almost like the first day we were at college. And I think that does hold true. Yeah. Colors. Um, you did ask me this one. I certainly dye my own yarns. Um, I think it's all to do with attention to detail as well. Again, mm-hmm. if you're trying to weave things, hand weaving things to sell, they've got to be special. They've got to be better, if you like, than what people can buy in the shops because the stuff in the shops fabulous. I mean, we're not saying that you can't buy wonderful things that are commercially made. And I think as a hand weaver, it's all this attention to detail, like we're talking about, get the right colour. Right. Talking about the yarn, get the right yarn, the right amount of twist that will give you the right sort of drape. You know, you can't just put a warp on and expect it to work. Right. And you have to, you know, every element, the yarn, the colour, the weave, the set. Set is a massive tool. Yeah. Don't, you know, whenever I do a sample blanket, I'll weave a piece and then I'll cut the warp and reslay it to a different set. Hmm. That is what gives you drape and handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one or two ends per, per inch, more or less, can have a massive effect. Yes. And I think it's just this being prepared to, which sounds like what you're doing as well, you know, sampling. And, but just in every aspect, you have to try the same weave in different yarns, especially as a beginner. You know, right. it's a lot of work. It's okay for me to say that because I've woven all these <laughs> samples already in all these yarns. So I know oh, I have to go down that route because I've done it before, but as a beginner, it's a, it's a huge job because every yarn will look different. It, you know, some yarns, it might have the same count number, but and be 24 ends per inch, but the, s- the same apparent count number, if it's got less twist, which means it will shrink more. It can maybe have 20 ends per inch. Uh, it, uh, the difference appears to be minor. Right. But actually, it makes a difference. Right. And, and I would say at a very early age, when it was really when I was weaving rugs, right at the beginning, I made, made uh, they looked great, my rugs I was making, but they didn't wear well. And quite soon they came back from the people I'd sold them to and they were all falling apart. I hadn't actually woven them well enough. Oh. I got Peter Gollingwood's book, The Techniques of Rug Weaving, and I really read it. And it was there that it was his attention to detail that really left a market, you know, marked, um, what's the word, you know, marked difference on me. I, I really took it to heart, right? It really mattered. Not just how to, you know, 
And so that's again, and that's why I, I still do a lot of sampling. I don't weave anything without sampling first, even though I have got all these samples, right? But when I'm actually on a finished product, I'll always check it out, particularly for set, you know? Yeah. Is it 20 inch or is it 22 to the inch? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It, it matters. Everything matters. Okay. Yeah. That's my, that's my bit of advice. Cool. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. When we do our set samples, we usually, we start what we think is way too low and then we go, we increase by two yeah. up till we think it's way too high. And then we wet finish all of them and see, like we bring them through to the end and see what they like, what works the best basically. Well, that's great. I mean, you're doing it. So you, you, you can understand what I'm saying then. It actually matters. It's amazing, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And I find with colour, sometimes with weaving, you can put a gorgeous warp on it. It's with beautiful colours. And you start weaving and it kind of dulls it a bit. Mm -hmm. Right. The warp, it never looks as quite as bright and as cheerful as you did. That's, you know, unless you do a warp dominant, unless you do a rep or something like that, where so the weft doesn't interact. But I find that, just tweaking maybe the warp slightly higher than the weft will mean the warp will show that bit more. The yeah. warp float will be longer and the weft float will be a bit shorter. And it's enough to make the warp zing a bit more that mm -hmm. you might have lost if it's if it's more weft dominant in terms of set. Mm -hmm. That's a good idea. Just little little things, but just try it out and be sensitive to what you're doing. Yeah. I think that's there's a lot of young there's a lot of younger weavers, us included, that often overlook the sensitivity that goes into weaving. That there are these little minor details that can make a cloth be a plain mm. cloth or something that's really spectacular that makes somebody want to touch it and makes them want to hold it and have it. And that's a really important piece of advice is to pay attention to those little details and be sensitive to what your cloth actually wants to be. Mm. Yeah. I'm a functional weaver. I've always woven functional items. Yeah. So I need to know what I'm weaving, you know, where it's going to live, who's going to use it, right? how they're going to use it. And that can help you to make certain decisions. I, I'm not very good at, well, no, I have to, if I have to dream up my own ideas, I have to know that as well, I suppose. I, I like being given a brief. I suppose that's what I've always done. I like people to tell me what they want and then I'll do it. But I hope I'll do it in an imaginative and sensitive way. Yeah. That's what they're paying me for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I always like tight constraints because I feel like it makes me more creative. It, like it forces me to be more creative with what I come up with for the solutions to the problem. Well, weave it. That's why I weave in a way. Because weaving is I, when at college, I remember they, we had print designs, printing, mm -hmm. print fabrics or knitted fabrics. I love the weaving because you, you had the warp and the weft, and you were you were stuffed. You know, you couldn't do flowers. You couldn't do it. And I found print design too widely spaced, and it was the limitations, if you like, that weaving has with the warp and weft interlacing. I'm not saying that's Eric that's what I feel I'm doing what you've just said mm -hmm. and you're having to work within these constraints and yet still produce something that's innovative and interesting yeah, yeah. 
I, yeah. I like I, that's what I like about weaving. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people get your books? Where's the best place for people to get your books? In the U.S., uh, the Lone Star Loom Room Company in Houston, in Texas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's she is importing my books. Okay, Otherwise, cool. You can buy them directly from my website as well. Okay. Uh, okay. The ups um new the ups um postage rate is not it's actually quite modest, I think, compared yeah. to other countries. To send books from the UK is fine. Okay, cool. Yeah, so we'll link both of those places. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And um is there anything else? Do you have a web store? Do you sell we we wovens? Um, I have a no, I don't. I, okay. I've I've stopped um, weaving to sell it now. I mean, I'm seventy years old now. I've um, I've done that. What I want to do is pass my knowledge on. So I do a lot of teaching. I am starting to look into doing uh, web Zoom lessons. Oh, really? So um, I'm going to do one for the Seattle Guild this weekend, starting this weekend. They're going to be my guinea pigs. Yes. And I'm doing a, a course. It's based on my books. Cool. That's awesome. So once that's up and running, I hope I'll be we, uh, speaking to lots more American weavers. But I think this is a good, this is a good interview. Thank you so yeah. much for taking the time to speak with us and share some of your knowledge. That's a pleasure. Uh, I look forward to hearing what you make of me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. It was so exciting to talk to Janet about the fundamentals of designing good cloth. Yeah, and if you're interested in purchasing her books, you can either order directly from her on her website, or if you're in the States, order through Lone Star Loom Room, which will be listed in the show notes. Another thank you goes out to Rawhead the Recluse for providing music for our podcast. Find him at rawheadtherecluse.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe now. It will help us reach more weavers and people who are passionate about hand-created textiles. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Professional Weaver Society. And you can get full show notes at proweaverpod.com. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Professional Weaver Podcast. We look forward to sharing more episodes with you each Friday. Bye. Bye.